0: Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan, And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So recall your old marching song, Try Not To Eat Any Curious Squid, and join us on our journey through jingo and the complete discography. Tonight, uh, after our summer break, we are reconvening to record while discussing Jingo, A Novel of Discworld, the 21st book in the series. This is getting into my very much my teenagerhood now because this book was published in 1997. We're creeping up on the modern era. Uh, And by modern era, I mean all the time that we spent in Afghanistan. Uh, Yep. (laughs) uh, This book is only four years older than that length of time. Which feels oddly pertinent, because boy, is this book... Um,
1: I, I did the exact calculations relative to Afghanistan and the Gulf War. Um, so, sees scroll, see. Scroll, scroll, scroll.
0: While f- Anna's doing that, we're joined tonight by our friend, colleague, sometimes, and uh, alien biology specialist, uh, Scott Paladin. Scott, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Um, hello, okay. I again, yeah uh, well there's a possibility they haven't heard me yet on this feed um, that's
0: true just on yeah. just on the other one
2: yeah yeah um I am scott paladin I am an internet uh podcaster guy i i do some some work with uh podcasts you may know or hopefully we'll go check out after this uh, uh monster mechanics and uh which is a, a brainstorming podcast where we fix creatures of myth and media and um see I'll also plug uh breathing space fading frontier which is a sci-fi anthology uh audio drama, which is uh, very good, and you should check it out.
0: So, Anna, your calculations.
1: Yes. So, um, this book was published six years and eight months after the end of the Gulf War and three years, ten months before the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. So, not quite smack in the middle, but basically smack in the middle.
2: Yeah, within a standard deviation of the middle.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's in the it's in the, the center zone there.
0: And I'm going to refrain from saying political... F- no, I'm not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
2: think... Yeah. Good luck with that.
0: Yeah. Let's start with our book-specific titles. Um, Scott, as you're our guest, you want to go first?
2: Sure. I am Scott, and I am talking into my Letting My Voice Be Heard Across vast Time and Space device.
3: I am Justin, and I think detritus threw my mic out with the anchor.
1: I'm Anna, and I'm working with Nabi to form a guild for exotic dancers.
0: And I am Aaron, newly appointed ambassador from Er. She's <laughs> a dumb joke.
2: I'm so glad I had my, um, when I, I read the book twice because I read it earlier this year. And when I did that, I thought of jokes for you guys. And I was, and I was smart enough to write them down. So that past me sent, sent present me a little gift that I didn't have to <laughs> scramble at the last minute for
1: him. Beautiful. <laughs> you truly are the most prepared of all of us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> P- preparation
1: so i think i'm doing the summary right
0: yeah uh would you like to summarize this yeah, sure. vimes heavy book
1: i'm pretty i'm pretty pleased with my summary this time i think it's pretty snappy so due to shifting episodes around for our own nefarious purposes um uh, we've got two watch books in a row now our novel opens far out in the sea at the exact midpoint between ankh-morpork and its rival nation Clatch. An island has risen from the sea containing the ruins of a city that seems to have valued squid-related art. This island is apparently called Leshp, and tensions ignite between the two nations regarding which one has a more legitimate claim to the island. Tensions have also arisen within ankh itself, which is home to a large number of Klatchian immigrants. Things come to a head within the city when the Klatchian prince Kufra arrives with his staff. The prince is scheduled to receive an honorary degree from Unseen University, and Vimes has to fulfill his diplomatic duties by participating in the parade. At the parade, Vimes and the watch narrowly foil in an assassination attempt, and their subsequent investigation reveals both real and decoy shooters, and a number of suspiciously convenient clues pointing toward the Klatchians being responsible. Politics. Regardless of who's actually guilty— uh, this was exactly the spark needed to ignite hostilities between the two nations. Kurfra's brother Kadrum declares war, Vetinari steps down as patrician of Ankhmore totally of his own free will, and Lord Rust declares martial law in the city and orders the nobility to start assembling regiments. Vimes and the rest of the Watch resign in protest, and the Watch is disbanded. As a knight himself, however, Vimes recruits the watch members to his own regiment, independent of Rust, as knights report to the king or his duly appointed representative, neither of which currently exist. Following the trail of clues leads Angua to follow the prince's bodyguard, 71-hour Ahmed, to his ship and be captured. Carrot reports back to Vimes with this news, and the two gather most of the watch and commandeer a ship to chase after Ahmed. Fred Colin, and Nobby Knobs are conspicuously absent, however, as they've been recruited by Vetinari instead, uh, along with the inventor Leonard of Quirm, for a special mission. On's admission, the four men pile into Leonard's revolutionary submarine, I mean, uh, no, going under the water safely device, and find that Leshp is in fact floating atop a bubble of gas, but that this gas is slowly escaping, and the island will inevitably sink again. All the various parties ultimately end up in Clatch. Vimes' group meets with Ahmed's tribe and learns both that Ahmed is his, himself a policeman and that he suspects Kadram of orchestrating the assassination attempt. Nabi, Colin, and Vetinari disguise themselves as street performers, notably featuring Nabi cross-dressing as a dancer, and everyone heads the city of Jebra. Once everyone is there, Kerit distracts the two armies with a game of football. I told you we had a, uh, Ted Lasso uh, tie in here. Vimes attempts to arrest both Cadrum and Rust on the charge of disturbing the peace.
0: And loitering in tents.
1: And Vetinari announces the unconditional surrender of Ankh Pork, and that the treaty will be signed on Leshp itself. Vimes arrests Vetinari for treason at Vetinari's insistence. When everyone arrives at Lesh, however, they find that it has once again sunk under the sea, nullifying the treaty and the treason charges. Vetinari is restored to power and Kadrum flees in disgrace, with Ahmed in close pursuit. Everything in the city returns to normal. With one exception, as punishment, I mean as reward, for his role in all these events, Vimes is promoted to Duke of Ankhmore Pork, and promptly attempts to flee his own investiture ceremony by chasing after a thief, as is his nature.
0: That was a very short summary for what is actually a substantially longer book than I remembered.
1: Yeah, it is a hefty book. Um, there's a lot going on, and I decided to just try to really cut to the the meat of the action here.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of set pieces that, you know, individually are fun but, you know, broadly are incidental to the thrust of the of the plot. You're right. Um, yeah, there's <sighs> It's a long so, book. Yeah, it is. It, it my my non-trade paperback, my hardback is 377 pages. Uh and I think Justin was saying that their trade pub was significantly more
3: yeah my my paperback which is like mass market is for 455 pages
1: mm-hmm. dang and somehow as with many of these discworld books i only remembered the back third
2: yeah me too yeah yeah that seems to happen where it's like when, once everything starts moving you start to remember what's going on but there's a lot of like wind up i guess would be the way to put it that yeah. you can mm-hmm. kind of forget about
0: yeah, so this is a very Vimes focused book. He's he's the perspective character in almost all of it except for some uh, uh Angua focused scenes, well, I think. And, and well there's
2: the- there's also the digressions on Lesh, and mm. also very briefly we see uh Ahmed as the um as the POV.
0: Or I guess we follow the the va- the veterinary subplot as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of veterinary in this book too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is fun. But not the two of them together all that much. Damn it. (laughs) Can't have everything. That's what fanfic is for.
0: That is what fanfic is for. So Vimes is in this middle spot in his career. Uh, I think, you know, I I have a thing that we will go into later that I need Justin not to hear um, (laughs) uh, about how this is a very significant turning point for Vimes in terms of character development. It's this point where he's still basically mostly just commander of, of this new city watch. We get a little bit a little bit more Sybil in this. Not very much. Not as much as we should, because Sybil yeah. deserves a lot more airtime. Um but Vimes has some adventures and experiences.
2: Yeah.
1: That he does. Yeah.
2: And a lot more in this book than the other watch books. The other characters of the watch are more orbiting around him than having mm-hmm. their own subplots where they're going off and doing their own thing for the most part.
1: Especially mm-hmm. you know. Carrot is really yeah takes a much smaller role in this one than we've seen in um, the previous watch books where Carrot was like, you know, close to being a co-protagonist with Fimes.
0: That's going to only continue aside from some stuff in Fifth Elephant. Yeah. Where Carrot sort of has ended his, his character development mostly.
2: Well, it's weird because you kind of can't take him anywhere without having to leave the watch. Like he's, he's, he's fallen to his role as second in command and, has sort of the Riker problem, like he needs to be a captain now, uh, in the sense of the head of the ship, and he mm-hmm. uh, can't really do that without having leaving the watch, and nobody wants him to leave the watch. So
0: right, and he couldn't because he's he's the representation of Ankh-Morpork at this point, mm-hmm. the good parts. Yeah. Speaking of the watch, we get you know all of our greatest hits over the water and under the water. Detritus the continues to be a problem that we will discuss. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Angua gets a lot of screen time in some very cool scenes and some very funny scenes. I think one of my favorites is when uh, Navi is, when they're encamped in, in and Navi is saying something about getting things from the quartermaster and you, and her, like her eyes, it's described as her eyes shooting open in horror, which is just a very yeah. like podcast. Navi and Colin get, a lot of screen time as well.
3: They are the useful idiots for Petunari. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> they're just uh, there to pedal, basically, for most of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if, sh- and should be convincingly stupid enough to f- make the people in Clatch think that they can't be so stupid as to yeah. be. But yeah, that was good.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and and we got seventy-one hour Ahmed as well yeah mm-hmm. who's uh our new vimes alike yeah yes.
3: i i was originally going to compare him to moriarty in my thing but i think it, i think the best way to describe it would be if mycroft yeah, was no. an antagonist in mm. a home story
2: or even he's not even a true antagonist in a lot of ways he's he's a yeah, it, it, he's a re- he's an interesting character. He's one of the more interesting characters in the book, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like Judge Dredd, almost.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's a dirty Harry a little bit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. With
2: a giant sword. Well, yeah, yeah. He's got the he's got the three fifty seven Magnum of giant curved swords.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> What's the line? Uh, it's not a concealed weapon. It's a concealed person. Yeah. If anything, he's a concealed owner.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's he's an interesting character.
2: It was interesting as I was reading as I was reading through the book or listening to the book because I, I was an audiobook person. Um, I one of the things that kept coming up to me is the idea that Ahmed uh, Vimes sees Ahmed the way that everybody else sees Vimes. Like he's always everywhere that nobody wants him to be, putting his nose into business that he should be you know he, that he should uh, not be paying attention to, finding things out and causing trouble. And I love the idea that like. There is an alternate version of this book where we follow Ahmed's version of it, and we get to see kind of like by the skin of his teeth the way he managed to pull all of that off. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's a huge section of the book where he just was four steps ahead of the watch the entire time, finding stuff out, learning things, killing people, moving on. And I'd love to see the 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 way he pulled that all off, and I would love to you know make get the the uh, the contrast of how it appeared to from the outside world that he had everything under control the whole time, versus the Oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, how am I gonna pull this off? That was yeah. probably actually going on under the surface.
1: Especially, I'm uh-huh. guessing that I'm guessing that he also underestimated Vimes.
2: Yeah. Well he
0: definitely underestimates Vimes' rage, yeah. yeah, like Hulk strength, because yeah. you know, it's several times implied that um it is, you know. An exceedingly dangerous fighter, but you know they're standing there and in, in the desert. And Vimes gets the drop on him at one point, yeah. like from a standing start.
2: The the only time that he explicitly, like at one point, he talks about how he had to slow down to make sure they didn't he didn't lose them. But the only time is because they're on the boat that's much slower than his boat. Right, mm-hmm. I think and that he sabotages is,
0: it.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, where he has to sabotage his own boat. Other than that, like. You know, Vimes is on him like a terrier, you know, the whole way through, which is
3: so there was a historical analog that was picking up my brain. And I just thought of it uh, for 71 hour often, which is Sidney Riley Um, for for this is this is uh, Sydney Riley was a spy in the early 20th century who is um, the 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 real life person that Ian Fleming based James Bond on.
1: Interesting.
2: In addition to um, Christopher Lee, who's also yeah. a big influence on.
3: <laughs> but yeah, like it just the, the um, like literally the dude worked for the United Kingdom, Germany and Russia and Japan at various points in his life. But like the person who like Ahmed's, Ahmed's purview is a lot larger than, than Vimes is. And he's a lot more um, proactive. <laughs> Um, and so it's just like it's it's definitely like it's a different type of policing than than what Vimes does.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he's sort of he's sort of out there being judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah, he's
3: definitely um, Vimes. The lot more executive uh, influence in both in both like the figurative and literal sense.
0: Yeah, and then we get also a fair amount of Leonard of Quirm uh, the mad genius
1: oh leonard he's the one who nice. he's the one who made the gun right
0: uh-huh Yeah.
1: yep he's sort of like the i've always loved leonard as the counterpoint to bloody stupid johnson
2: Yeah. of
1: like bloody stupid johnson like nothing that he made worked and leonard everything that he makes works but perhaps too well mm-hmm. yeah
2: I mean, he's he's one long commentary on the way that science tends to be used for great evil, you know, over and over again, despite yeah. his best efforts. Yeah, that's, that's the entire scientific field squashed into just Leonard, of Quern.
0: I actually completely missed the references to this until I was doing some sort of out-of-book research, but it's apparently heavily hinted at the beginning that he's invented nuclear fission.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> he built a nuclear bomb, or he's designed a nuclear bomb. <sighs> For for moving mountains, you know, in case they need to get them right. Out.
0: But apparently a lot of people read the the metal canister that um that veterinari was carrying as like a nuclear device. And I I missed oh. that entirely. Mm.
2: It it was definitely hinted to be some sort of weapon. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the way that Terry was, was um foreshadowing it, as though Veterinari has this plan that he's gonna go in and win the war with, a, with his tube or whatever, and it turns out to instead be the surrender papers that he's prepared ahead of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Veterinary doesn't win anything with anything other than words.
2: Yeah. Well, and the occasional melon and or chicken.
0: <laughs> anything we want to clear
1: up uh, before we dive into discourse? So one thing is, I'm a de werewolf too, right?
2: I did not get that at all. No, no I didn't get that at no? all. No? Yeah, I thought it was
0: no. his do- hunting dogs that that you're referred to at one point. But
1: there was a thing. Uh, I So I'll I have to read it again because like there's always been like picking at my brain. That mm-hmm. because there's the thing of like the dog getting to the tower before Vimes does.
0: I thought that was just Angua. Yeah, that was Angua. Okay. That was to the- yeah, I know what you're talking
1: about. Yeah, and it is. It That's- is
0: vague, but yeah, yeah.
1: there's a, there's a couple of there's a couple of things that happen that like could be Angua or could be Ahmed. I feel like like the 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 sabotaging of the ship too. Like that. But he th- like he handles yes.
0: silver. So yeah,
1: mm, true, true.
2: I think he was very clear that he was supposed to be much more knowledgeable about werewolves than they were expecting him to. By underestimating that knowledge about him, that's what gets Angua in trouble. Yeah, yeah. For sure. 100% 100 agree on that.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: All right. I did have a thing that, like, jumped out at me. And this is mostly just a a thing of, like, I've read 20 of these books already, or 21. And I was trying to remember if there's ever a specific time where it says, like, called in the text. But in the last third of the book, it like within a space of like five pages, Terry, like there are tw- there are two instances of two different Klatchian people like referring to like Encore Porkians as white. Hmm. And like and specifically saying, like, there's one instance of like Ahmed saying, like, I- I've never served under a white officer, and somebody and somebody else saying something similar. And I'm just trying to remember if there's ever been any like specific other times that like whiteness is referenced, like what we've read so far, at least.
0: I don't remember it, but I'm not sure.
3: It it just it was
1: significant enough that it stood out. Mm -hmm. The only thing I remember is when we're when we're reading um, Witches Abroad and there's reference to somebody being black specifically.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. This is just, like, it's a thing that stood out at me, and I'm, like, it could just be, like, a thing, but it is, like, it's the only time I've ever seen, like, whiteness specifically being, like, a reference thing instead
0: of, Mm -hmm. like, ankh Morporkian
3: or something like that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah.
3: It could just be something that, like, it was, like, it, it happens within, like, five pages of each other, and it's never referenced again in the book.
2: Well, mm-hmm. and the the specifically like being led by white officers mm-hmm. felt like it was a reference to something specific that I didn't have the cultural yeah. knowledge for. Yeah, probably Lawrence
0: it. of Arabia.
3: Yeah, I and mean, it's I mean it's 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 partly a Lawrence of Arabia thing, but it was also like for the British Empire when they would use colonial troops, yeah, like like uh, Indian or ANZAC, like yeah. even like with like Maori troops, like it would they would still be led by English officers. Yeah. And it was the idea that like it was the very racist idea that like, oh yeah, they're they are courageous cunning fighters, but they need to be led by white men.
2: Yeah, yeah. American Civil War too.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um Justin, as the person in the room who hasn't read the hadn't read this before, what what are your, your thoughts just sort of uh, broadly?
3: I think it's a pretty good book. Like I don't think it's as good as like the previous watchbook we read. <laughs> uh, because mean, it's not a watch book. Um. Right. And it's it's very much a Sam Vine's book. Like the first half of the book is, I think, a little more traditionally watchy. But I think sometime between when Terry wrote Pyramids and Terry wrote this book, he at least like skimmed through Edward Said's Orientalism. Yeah. Uh, and like and it had some better ideas. Um the second half of this book okay okay it's just straight up like a sharp hornblower maturin adventure like the second half of this book is just like a military adventure novel yeah um
0: it, it, that's really accurate
3: it, it sort yeah. of just like jumps genres um in a fun way and like as somebody who like you know i consider master and Commander of the far side of world of the world a comfort movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I consider those three hour movies of movies, but uh like it, it's very much like a like it, it jumps into a very fun thing. I didn't really have a huge problem with much of anything in this book, and we'll we'll discuss this probably a little bit more. But I think it's like like I know that there was some trepidation coming to this, but as like as a newcomer, I'm like, this is fine. This is this is fine. Yeah.
1: Oh, I had so much trepidation going into this one because I haven't read it in a hot minute. I didn't like try to kind of go through and list every time that there was something that was, you know, struck me as being still kind of problematic, etc. Yeah, I I think it's not without problematic aspects that are still there. But it really feels like Terry is trying to turn a corner here. Um, after like sorcery and pyramids. It's not perfect, but it's a lot more self-aware. And the the thing that really clinched it for me and made me feel like okay, this is, this is going to be okay. <laughs> is that line very early in the book where he s- steps away from the page and says, you know, that you know, the the jokes in the previous books aren't very funny when you actually think about it? Um, and he's calling himself out. Yeah, and he's he's come such a long way at this point from the the flippant like, there's no racism in Discworld because why be racist when you can be speciesist? he's come such a far away from that. And it like, I'm, I'm glad that it turned out so much better than I feared.
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I, the, the watch books are my favorite series uh, of this world. And, I remembered this not being my favorite watch book. I think I would have, if I was, if I was going to rank them, this might be right at the bottom of them, but that still means it's like a better than average disc world book to me. <laughs> um, and I was, I liked it. I, 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 with that in thought in mind, when I went back to reread it, I was like, ah, I'm, I, I'm not super jazzed. but it was, it was better than I was remembering it to be. It has a better plot, uh, which I had just not remembered <laughs> from the last time I had read it. Yeah, It's, it's better paced than it could have been. It was, it was a lot, stronger a book than i had remembered it being and I, I remember thinking especially that like there is a way to tell police stories that can be very like in inst- like us uphold the institutions and and um and uh the status quo where the, the police become the long arm of of the majority basically and this feels like one of the points where pratchett says no we're we're not that's not the story we're telling with these things the the police are here to fight the big to to prosecute the big crimes as well the ones that the injustices of the world and that often means aiming at those who have power rather than those who don't and that seemed very clear in this book in a way that maybe wasn't in when i on my previous reads for other ones
0: yeah i agree you know like on i i was concerned because i knew this was a clatch heavy book and previous outings have been less positive
1: even even fairly recently with interesting times
0: Yeah. But overall, yeah, I agree. I think that it was, it was a, even though it's a big book, it still feels very tightly plotted. It still feels, you know, every twist and turn is, is both executed well and sold. And it didn't feel, aside from Carrot, who's a walking deus ex machina, um, I didn't, (laughs) I don't really feel like there were many in the many, like, sort of out of nowhere things that sometimes happen in his his earlier books and yeah some of the the self-reflection on both himself uh, in his own world and then also reflecting outwards into the world that he's living in uh is is pretty evident i mean i was in the uk only four years after five years after this book came out and it felt you know a lot of what he was he talks about in this book is very clearly contemporary social issues that the UK was dealing with at the time, especially with like, yeah, a a big thing that's discussed in here is, is like second generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can get into that later. Yeah. I mean, the the big theme that I I pulled out was basically everyone's got the potential to be an asshole, no matter what they look like. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
2: People are just people.
1: I feel like this is the first of the really transparently, Anti-war Discworld novels that that's a running thread. You know, this one's the first one that really is like war bad. It's not just a general blanket war bad. There's a lot of focus on really specific stuff like disparities between the leaders and people who actually do the fighting, you know, and how how pro-war sentiment can be riled up, kind of back at home, you know, with the with the women who are uh, giving Nobby the white feather to try to guilt him into signing up to fight, etc. Both of both of those like really stood out to me as parts of a kind of like coherent anti-war message that's not just like the face like war bad.
2: Yeah, and it's a very personal kind of blame for the war. Like it's not just war is inevitable, war is going to happen, war is awful. It's definitely like People cause war. People decide to go to war, and they're not the ones who pay the price for it. Usually, yeah. And that it's not just it's not just something that happens. It's not just a a uh, an inevitability from uh, time and space, and that people are going to do that. It's that somebody decides to do it, and then those people are to blame for it.
1: Yeah, and and we especially see that with Vimes as the POV character because he's he's in the room where it happens. There, you know, he's there when the decisions are being made and trying to the best of his ability as commander of the watch to keep this from happening.
0: Yeah, the the name comes from a term called jingoism, which originated from an anti-war song uh, in the UK during the Russo-Turkish War of 1877. They were fighting over Istanbul again. Any other main themes, or do we want to go into secondary themes? Aside from, you know, it being a... a Military and simultaneously military and sort of spy novel. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, yeah. like that, that's that's like I wouldn't say those are like themes of it, but it's mm-hmm. like that's a it's a subgenre. It's like
2: yeah,
1: yeah, because Terry definitely likes to play around with subgenres. Like in Feet of Clay, we had CSI, ank More Pork.
0: I mean, could one of the main themes be subverting tropes?
1: Because <laughs> uh, there's a
0: there's a lot of subversion of expectations in in this in this book. Oh yeah Both for sure textually and metatextually the whole thing with i don't know, I don't know how to contextualize this really, but like the whole thing with the linchpin of the plot uh that the Klatchians are doing is they know how Vimes will react, which is to be a suspicious bastard mm-hmm. <laughs> yep
2: well and to be to first blame his own side too mm-hmm. yeah uh, that they yeah. count on that, yeah,
0: but like. Three different major actors in the book are all all know how Vimes will react to certain stimuli and are using that.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, you know, even the the blank letter to Vimes from oh, yeah, from yeah. That Nari, <laughs> which is
2: it's just so Vetnari.
4: Yeah. I, I,
0: yeah, and the other thing that I think we've touched on briefly so far, but you know, I just mm-hmm. wanted to, to reinforce was the, the this like this delineation in Vimes head, at least. And also on the page that police are not the military and shouldn't be the military. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's basically like, he says at one point, you know, if I'm killing people, I'm reading the wrong manual.
3: It, it reminded me a lot of like at the end of the book, when he's talking about like the, the police and the military, it reminds me of the, the, the line from Battlestar Galactica where where I had to look at it up because I don't remember the exact line where, Edward James Olmos Commander Adama says, "There's a reason you separate military and the police. One fights the enemies of the state; the other serves and protects the people. When the military becomes the uh, becomes both, then the enemies of the state tend to become the people." Yeah.
0: Yep. yep. It's also a significant critique of the rich who sit behind the battle lines.
2: Yeah.
1: And
0: yeah. And for send sure. The young off to war.
2: Yeah. Lot. Lots of uh, from coming up from a bunch of different characters who are just like old, you know, white dudes who want to go off to war because they think it's a grand adventure and they'll win them clout and they don't really care who they get killed, including their own men, you know, mm-hmm. if it's, it's Saturized
0: to the extreme when yeah. Rust is starting to talk about like stories that his his n- nanny told him about, you know, King, yeah. you know Sugar Plum defeating the the the, um yeah. Are yeah. you calling my
2: nanny a liar? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good
1: God, line. Rust.
2: <laughs> yeah, Rust is a- counterpointed
0: by the through line of uh, Tacticus, which I also really yeah, mm-hmm. enjoyed. Yeah. Tacticus is a good through line. Uh, which yeah. is very much like, must have been Vimes's ancestor at some point because yeah. it's all like, how do you win a siege? Don't get in a fight.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, what do you do when, you're, uh, when your opponent is inside of an impregnable fortress? See that he stays there. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <sighs> the, the other one. Um you know, take the battle by the scrotum or something like that. And with the, with the footnote of, he was not a very honorable fighter. And it's like, that's such a, that's such a Vimes move though. That
2: is a very Vimes yeah. move.
1: In, in other tropes, we have the, um, we have the kind of British drag comedy thing, which I'm sure we'll talk more about.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's so much to unpack
1: there. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot to unpack and I, I'm not sure. I'm legitimately not sure how I feel about it. So. Yes, same here.
0: I don't know. I I'm okay with it simply because it's Nobby. Never aside from the original, from the very first step, Nobby seems to be totally fine with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And one thing I kept that that, that stood out to me was that the third person narr- uh, narrator keeps switching pronouns on it on mm-hmm. Nobby. Mm-hmm. And to the point where I I get to the end of the book and I'm like, I don't really know where Nobby stands anymore. Like yeah. I legitimately could see him staying as Betty and being her or not and it seems like they would be fine with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that I think that if um if he hadn't been, you know, ordered to get back into uniform at the end, who knows what would have <laughs> happened. Um and the and also the narration does use the name Betty for qu- yeah. a substantial chunk of the book. Mhm. I also liked that Nobby seemed to be very aware of it, you know, that you know, while, while Nobby was having this experience, it was definitely, there was a lot of observation going on of like how women really are treated in society and, you know, about gender roles and stuff like that, that I don't think had crossed his mind before at all. Yeah. I think it'll be definitely interesting as we keep reading through these books to see that that definitely impacts Nobby going forward. Um, and we see his relationships uh, with women, et cetera, change. And following that, I think, will be great.
0: On the other hand, we also get the Bugs Bunny subverted uh, with Nabi cross-dressing because it's even called out in a footnote. Uh, you know, traditionally speaking, na- narratively speaking, when a, when a man cross-dresses to disguise as a woman, they become you know irresistibly attractive. This was not the case with Nabi.
3: <laughs> like it's even like all like all comedic pretenses say that right. this must happen, except yeah. yeah. And I think I think it is sort of a thing of like I think the thing that sort of saved this. Is that it's it's neither he is incredibly hot and everybody chases after him and he doesn't revolt everybody and like they like stone him or something. And he has like a nice conversation with some yeah. ladies and like
1: that's the thing that moves the plot forward. The, mm-hmm. the women accept mm-hmm. him as one of their own and befriend him and everything and he has a nice yeah. time.
0: But he has yeah. some great stories. <laughs> a thousand and one of them, in fact. <laughs> uh... <laughs>
1: But at the same at the same time I think that this particular instance works but at the same time it's playing into a like particular staple of British comedy that I think often is not well-meaning and ends up being quite transphobic.
2: Yeah, you could definitely imagine reading this book from a particular point of view and just repeatedly over and over again, the joke over and over is just Nabi's dressed as a woman. Nabi's dressed as a woman. Wouldn't it be funny if Nobby was dressed as a woman? It doesn't seem – like it's not in there in the text, but you can imagine somebody interpreting it that way. And it's just almost on that line where it could have gone one way or the other specifically, and it's kind of not really taking a stance one way or the other. It's not yeah. super heavy into that, but you could imagine somebody who was per- inclined to read it that way, reading it in a transphobic way.
1: Yeah. I think that that's a – Good thing to point out, particularly as we're right on the heels of a bunch of transphobes attempting to posthumously claim Terry as their own.
0: And also reading Feet of Clay. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: The other thing that I would just sort of call out is, I think that there's a a through line of of colonialism, but in ankh Park's particular case, it's British you know, British colonialism as it is in 1997, which is about a 100 years past the height of their power. Uh, but, you know, there's the people who don't really know that that elephant is, you know, dead.
2: It's interesting to me how he repackaged a lot of the... You now, obviously, he's he's talking about... British colonialism, but all of the trappings of ankh porking colonialism is, is wrapped up in Roman Empire um, Empire mm-hmm. clothing. It's all mm-hmm. using dog Latin and talking about, you know, back when they had General Tactitus and stuff. And it's it's interesting how he's using that reframing to sort of, I'm assuming, talk directly to an audience that otherwise might not be listening about it. Mm-hmm. The pith helmet and the toga at the same time.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there. There's a lot of fetishism of of the Roman Empire all across the Western canon, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: and we managed to get our Ozymandias reference in there as well, <laughs> with uh, Tacticus's city with his giant stone feet and his threat that, hey, I can see your house from here.
0: <laughs> it's one of my favorite single jokes in there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the uh, some of the the boots or buttons or whatever we're calling them moments. We sh- we should have called them boot moments, but then Justin wouldn't have gotten that for no um, books and books and books.
3: Well, instead, it, it, no, it's Das boot moments.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Beautiful uh, respect. I mean, that's that's the joke. Obviously, it's going forward. Right.
0: Oh, I call it the boat.
2: Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: It's it's sort of um Hunch for Red October too. Cause it's got the screw drive.
3: Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's got the caterpillar I drive.
3: I, I do enjoy the the fact that Terry recognizes that submarines smell awful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and you know, that's just that's with like Regular submarines. Imagine a submarine that is being powered by Fred Cole and a knobby knob pedaling.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: after, and after only, they brought, there's
0: only beans and cheese.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Man, they could like just light a match in there and <laughs> use that as <laughs> propellant. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, even surfacing under Lesh must, must have been a relief.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a button moment. Yeah, go for it. It is a bit where Vimes is musing on conspiracies. Uh, The quote is because he wanted there to be conspirators. It was much better to imagine men in some smoky room somewhere, made mad and cynical by privilege and power, plotting over the brandy. You had to cling to this sort of image because if you didn't, then you might have to face the fact that bad things happened because ordinary people—the kind who brushed the dog and told their children bedtime stories were capable of going out and doing horrible things to other ordinary people. It was so much easier to blame it on them. It was bleakly depressing to think that they were us. If it was them, then nothing was anyone's fault. If it was us, what did that make me? After all, I'm one of us. I must be. I've certainly never thought of myself as one of them. No one ever thinks of themselves as one of them. We're always one of us. It's them that do the bad things.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a, a callback to small gods as well with the banality of evil discussion in, in, in there. You
1: yeah,
2: know. yeah. Although I have to say that with the ultra modern version of conspiracies, it's almost not applicable anymore because those don't have any basis in, in anything anymore. Yeah. But yeah, no. The, the instinct to to look for agency is superhuman. To like to ascribe agents behind everything. Very mm-hmm. comforting.
1: Like Aaron said, the banality of evil and also you know, that everybody thinks that they're on the the just side. Nobody casts themselves as a, as a villain, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's no scene shooting the evil villains in real life, except for maybe... you know, there, are there are some. There
2: are some of them. <laughs> yeah, there are some. <laughs> you, say, yeah. you say that, but there are some. <laughs> yeah. But even they think that they're on the side of good,
0: I think. Uh, maybe. Somehow. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I think some of them just think that they're on the side of making a lot of money.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of money, uh, the one of the one of the things that really popped out to me is this discussion of how uh, Ankhmork Pork is basically bankrupt and yet full of rich people
1: because the rich people don't pay their taxes. Yeah. Amazing.
0: <laughs> that doesn't sound familiar all at all. All Vimes.
1: Yeah. I. <laughs> and Vimes is just like rub <laughs> his hands <laughs> and. Oh. They, I paid mine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All of those cancel scenes are just so great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I love that Vimes is attending those meetings now because he's just got to be just (laughs) the the worst.
0: Just full of rage.
3: He is like just truly just like, oh, oh, it's like the opposite of vibing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that uh, it's not so much a button sort of moment moment i'm breaking my own rules here uh so much as like the there's the through line of this one particular family that runs a a um a curry shop basically mm-hmm. and the the son. it's just so crystal clear like second generation immigrant moment after moment you know you know he, he talks all this time about like I I don't care. I don't want all the stuff about the moon rising over the mountains of the sun. I get that at home all the time. I live here. I, you know, I, I'm from Angmar Park, you know, who cares where, where my parents are from? This is where I am from. A lot of second generation immigrant stuff in, in this book. And it's, it's good.
3: I don't know if it's a button moment, so it's just, just like a moment of extreme assertion of agency, um that I find very like thrilling is when Vimes decides to arrest two armies,
4: <laughs> yeah,
3: of like realizing that it's like that they're like as as like an individual he has nothing that he can do to stop a war except the preposterous, yeah mm-hmm. and of and, and then like doing it and through, uh, I th- there there are some mitigating factors, deeply <laughs> current yeah. and like the audaciousness. But I mean, it works.
1: It's it's uh... gets them really far. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Because I think I can at this point. Yeah, in yeah. the narrative. Yeah,
1: it's like everybody's so shocked by that that they that it works as a stall tactic until that yeah. can get there and be like. Actually, no, we're surrendering. Lol. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Just just as it's about to go completely pear-shaped, when he has his moment where he's thinking about to um, suffer not injustice vimes and how eventually you just have to be the one to take... He, he, he gets right up to the edge of like, okay, I'm going to shoot the prince because <laughs> the, the, the arresting thing's not going perfectly to plan. It's not actually working. <laughs> and he is basically prepared to do it and then vetinari comes in at the last second and stops him from having to make that that last decision
1: yeah
0: if this was a tv show it would have like the cold open would have been like you know you might be wondering how i got here as the cross- <laughs> <laughs> god <laughs>
3: and he nearly kills the prince yep. yeah 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 what's because- the line
2: the the uh the look on the prince's face would keep him warm on cold nights if there ever were cold nights again.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Vibe says, like, looks on Overlordress," overlord it's like, that's right, it runs in front of the family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then just later, it's like, I'm going to shoot someone today, and it might just be you. And then later, Ahmed, uh, Ahmed following up on that, of like, the last person to <laughs> drop their, <laughs> I will shoot the last person to drop their weapon. <laughs> okay you two tied <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's sort of it, it's it's got like this batshit like coen brothers energy to it yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Much.
2: yeah burn after reading yeah yeah that and that fits with the that actually fits with the plot where like veterinary definitely set vimes down the route but i'm not sure he expected vimes to end up exactly where he was at the time he was <laughs> But if Vimes hadn't disrupted everything, then Vetinari's plan wouldn't, to swoop in wouldn't have necessarily worked. So it mm-hmm. was, yeah, kind of a Coen Brothers plot where everybody was was not quite sure what they were doing and it all worked out in the end. And everybody um, ends up
0: together in the climactic
2: scene.
1: Yeah. Well, and actually, actually, that dovetails really nicely with one of my favorite bits from this book is there's a musing on Vetinari and how Vetinari doesn't actually plan things.
4: Yeah. That
1: because like, <laughs> if you were to plan things, and that mean that you had to know everything. And if you knew everything, you could take actions to stop whatever it is from happening. And like, so that veterinary never plans. It's basically just that he's observant. And like, has good tactical thinking and like, you know, has a good sense of how to act.
2: He's a natural juggler, so he can yeah. look at yeah. all the things falling out of the sky and grab them and put them in the right place.
3: The quote
1: about juggling is so
3: good, yeah, because it just like it's a very like throwaway line, but it it, it like perfectly. I, I'm trying to find it. This is the book, of course, that I like that I decided to read with a brick cop like the, <laughs> the, the the dead tree copy, and,
2: and it's helpful to always know where the chicken is.
3: Yeah, yeah. How strange. It's hardly a skill, is it? One knows where the objects are and where they want to go. After the cat, after that, it's just a case of letting them occupy the correct positions in time and space. You're dead good at it, sir.
1: Practice often, do you? Until today, I never tried. <laughs> He's there juggling with, like, knives. Yep.
0: <laughs> knives and watermelons.
1: Yeah. I feel like that's really the core of like Vetinari's relationship with vimes is that he's never sure like exactly what vimes will do but he knows yeah. you know he knows vimes's trajectory and so he knows that if he if he tosses vimes in a particular direction then vimes will do something good you Vimes will do something useful
2: he's not playing vimes like a fiddle he's it's like a jazz improvisation where he knows the chord changes but he doesn't know the tune
1: right mm-hmm uh, one of the
0: other things that I really liked about this book was the through line of the uh, middle aged fishermen and their thoroughly embarrassed teenage sons. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It just played so. It, the, it was sort of a microcosm of the entire book, really. I,
2: I absolutely love the line where the. It's, it's right in the beginning where the two. The sons are. They look at each other, and although no words are spoken, it was an expression that was modulated with a lot of information. Yeah. <laughs> so, starting with the incredible embarrassment of having parents and working up from there. I'm like, that is such a good line. <laughs> I have been in that exact situation, sitting at a at a family gathering with some friends of a friend, and it's like, Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> I think Ree Pratchett was in her late teens or early twenties at that point. So oh, yeah. he was probably working off of notes. And then the other, there's there's a lot of physical comedy in this book, too. I mean, with, with like, Fred. But the thing that, that really stuck out to me was was uh, in Leonard and Va- Vetinari's initial conversation at the beginning of the book about the island, uh, Leonard catches him so completely by surprise with some information that he doesn't catch up until the next page.
2: Yeah. He has to come back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: he
0: has to, like, uh, oh, run could- through his traps.
2: Yeah, And the description that it was like the, you know, heard, the, heard them coming back and then paused for exactly as long as it would take someone to catch their breath and seem like they had been stro- like hadn't been running. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good line. I love that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then Ahmed being substitious, which is very similar to Vimes, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. Being a little, maybe even being a little bit nerd.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Vimes is permanently nerd, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suspect that Ahmed may be the same way.
0: Yeah. 71-hour, Ahmed was not superstitious. He was substitious, which put in him in a minority among humans. He didn't believe in the things that everyone believed in, but which nevertheless weren't true. He believed instead in the things that were true in which nobody else believed. Uh, there are many such superstitions, ranging from it'll get better if you don't pick at it, all the way up to sometimes things just happen.
1: <laughs> that really that really is a, oh, yeah, a Vine's point mood. of view.
2: I particularly like Vetinari's uh, the way I put it, was the one neat trick all warmongers hate, where he at the, at the climax of the book yeah. strolls in and just surrenders. And and, and like we said, we, we he doesn't plan, but he was kind of ready for this solution. And he has the thing where he's like, okay, well, we're going to give you everything you want and to the point where you can't say no. And then, oh yeah, well, well, we'll ratify it on Lesh, of course, knowing in his back pocket that it won't be there in time. And meanwhile, letting everybody else get kind of frazzled over it. And then, the the detail of him requesting shackles for him to be brought up on treason charges, <laughs> and, and talking about, uh, do you even have a hurdle like we <laughs> that I need to be dragged in on? Just so incredibly smug. I love it so much. It's, yeah, it's a hundred percent drama llama.
1: And it's
0: Like I believe the punishment for treason is hanging, drawing, and quartering. I'm familiar with the quartering, but I'm not sure about the drawing. <laughs> yeah.
2: How good are you with a pencil?
3: (laughs) I look at him like he gets handcuffed and he's like, I expect shackles. Yeah. I expect more of my
2: watch. We're getting, we're going to, we need to get some shackles so the next time this happens, we can do it right.
1: (laughs) And I I really like Vimes throughout that because he starts off with like, oh no, I could never arrest Vetinari. He's my pal essentially yeah. and then he's like no no I that's absolutely need to be able to arrest Vetinari otherwise I'm not doing my job mm-hmm. you know what is the watch for unless everybody is held to the same standards
0: which is interesting if you think what 15 books back to when Carrot first enters the city and immediately arrests the, the head of the thieves guild <laughs> yeah. yeah yes so things change I guess yeah and maybe that's Vetinari's plan but it isn't plan.
2: Yeah. but
1: but also the thieves guild is an insurance guild. So yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. They're not really thieves these days.
3: <laughs> I also
1: really do love the leverage
3: that Veninari gets over Vibes to get him accept to accept the dukedom. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Which I will rewrite history for you. Which this is why I ship them. <laughs> yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and the whole negotiation over where where the statue will be. Oh
2: yeah, I love that <laughs> over there where where it'll be out of the out of the wind and the rain.
0: And in my line of sight. Thanks, Vimes.
2: Yes. <laughs> so
0: good. I think that the detritus thing that I did like in this book was the troll word, which literally means the moment when you see the first few pebbles and just know there's about to be a huge landslide and it's already too late to run. Vimes asked where the word comes from and detritus suggests that it's the sound you make right before a thousand tons of rock hit you.
1: There's another line that I love, where at the very end, as Vimes is being, you know, bullied into uh, accepting Dukehood, he says, "You know, I'm, I'm bought and sold, aren't I?" And Vetinari comes back at him with, "You might be bought and sold, but not needlessly spent."
2: Yeah, yeah, really, and marched away, Vimes. And men marched back. How glorious the battles would have been that they never had to fight. He hesitated and then shrugged. And you say bought and sold? All right, I, uh, but not I think needlessly spent. Such a good line. Yeah, yeah. And then buttons it up with veni, vici, veterinari. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> he can't resist.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a really good line that I think is a really good summary of how veterinari looks at not just vimes, but just the city and everybody in it. Yeah, He knows everybody's pressure points, you know, in terms of how to get them to do what he wants either, you know, either with a carrot or a stick, depending on the person and the moment, but,
2: (laughs) or with carrot,
1: (laughs) there we go. (laughs) (laughs) But he's not needlessly manipulative. He still values these people.
2: Yeah. It's interesting because you can imagine in his world, every piece on his chessboard um, has a value that he's assigned to it which means he's gone through and thought very mercenary mer- mercenarily about everybody around him to say how much value is Vimes for example but at the same time that means that he knows everybody's value and therefore nobody is worthless
4: mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah it's it's a complementary worldview to both vimes and and carrot really mm-hmm. sort of three different perspectives on on the same thing the the thing that uh, that I really wanted to sort of briefly focus on was was Sergeant Colon's development throughout the book Mm -hmm. Um, because he really starts out as like the almost the stereotypical lower middle class just mainly like casual unthinking racism uh, that he engages in and you know it's brought to his attention in, in various different ways but I'm not sure it's so it's interesting how he, how we see him learn throughout the course of the book. And I don't know if it's active learnings or, or like at the end, I'm not sure if it's a really surface level thought where he's like, actually, you know, the Klatchian's head makes me really uncomfortable. And, you know, uh, so maybe we should go somewhere else instead and not go off for that. Or if it's, or if it's more subconscious, but, you know, at least there's change. Yeah, you know there are a lot of ethnic slurs in this book for a, a made up, but based on a real selection yeah. of people. Yeah, and it's never not commented on by other by other yeah, people yeah. in the scene.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, to the point where you know Vimes pulls him aside, and we can imagine what what earful he gives you know, uh, Colin, who only a few paragraphs before he had Vimes had mentioned in the uh, narration that. You know, Fred was a was a person who'd earned calling him Mr. Vimes, you know, like a Mr. Mm-hmm. from from his it, it didn't matter mm-hmm. because he'd earned it. And then hearing Fred say a slur, he pulls him aside and Fred comes back shaken and it's like, Okay, you know, this is something that, that matters to the people that it matters, you know, like it, it it's important to call people out on it, which I think is cool that he mm-hmm. that he was willing to demonstrate that so explicitly.
1: Yeah. I really enjoy Nobby in this book. Like in general,
2: Nobby's snarky poking yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. that
1: that like when Fred's like, oh they're they're not our kind of people and Nobby's like, well what what are our kind kind of people Sarge uh could you could you explain it to me and mm-hmm. I, I think it's Nobby's perpetual needling in part that gets Colin to think about things a little bit more because he's he's really forcing colon to like delve down and say exactly what he's thinking
0: Uh Mm -hmm. and you know we also see a bunch of stereotypes from the other direction too you know nobody is without sin in this book
1: Mm -hmm. i feel like i wish that there had been some sort of in-universe ethnic slur or something like that that was not something that existed in real world. I think that's a tall order, especially with the parallels that I think he was trying to draw, but I could imagine that being extremely, even though it's being called out, it's still there everywhere. Like there's slurs on, it's just everywhere. And I think that that could be extremely jarring to read. I found it fairly jarring myself.
2: That being said, I know some people who wouldn't having it pointed out in fiction for that, for for words like that would point it out to them in real life that that was a word they've been using that they probably shouldn't have. And Mm -hmm. that they might not have caught the same because it's not so much that they think, I know I've I've people in my own life who didn't realize they were using a slur because they didn't think of it as a slur. They thought that was just what you call. It was a funny thing. And they didn't realize the impact they were having that sort of unthinking racism. Yeah. And having it explicitly called out is is him. I would assume talking to some people in, you know, in England at the time in his life and people that, you know, here in America at the time, too. Oh, my God. um, Saying like, no, this is bad. This is this is bad. You need to cut that out.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I read it as intentionally discomforting basically. Yeah. 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 But, you know, speaking from a point of view of somebody who he could be talking to, as opposed to somebody that the slur could be potentially referring to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, I definitely wouldn't fault anybody who
0: decided oh, yeah, to
1: sure. put the book aside um, and not finish it. Yeah. Based off of,
4: uh, yeah.
1: Based off of that. And it's interesting because it's, it's a slur that he used himself in um, pyramids, non, yep you know, Without without commentary on it, too. yeah.
2: So then, in, ca- in that case, one of the people he's calling out is himself. Yeah, yeah.
0: Let's see anything else that we want to sort of pick at and discuss in terms of things that we're not so sure about?
3: I mean, the Detroit is there is I. It's like it's we get really like two bits in the book, and one of them is the the reading of the Riot Act. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a thing of like showing who is the like there're still some elements within the watch that uh when you give somebody a siege crossbow, everything looks like a castle.
1: <laughs> yeah. That um, yeah. He's sort of the, the poster troll for police brutality.
3: And there's no actual like instances of it. Yeah. yeah. Unlike in Guards Guards where like they randomly like the guards will get into fights and just like randomly pull people into alleys and kick their asses. Mm-hmm. There isn't any of that in this book.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, except when Fred and Nobby try to do the spy thing of knocking people out and taking their clothes, and yeah.
2: have I, the I, opposite happen. I but love not, yeah. I love Nobby pointing out that technically it worked. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. it's just not how they expected.
0: Yeah, we we've talked about the the Nobby cross dressing stuff. Uh, I don't know if we need to make any more hay out of that.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. except that I I, I didn't mention earlier, but I still I feel more more and more bad every time they make a a, a Nabi is disgusting joke over time. Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. when I I remember when I was younger thinking it was fine. And now it's like, I just feel sorrier and sorrier for Nabi as time goes on. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, poor little dude. He's just he's trying his best.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I did like how he tried to staple the the book of Om to his uh, his uniform, though, because it was like five inches thick.
2: <laughs> the, the yeah the joke about the arrow being stopped by the by the book and shame about the 17 others yeah it's a really good joke too
0: <laughs> this is jumping back a bit but i think sure. this is also I think this is the first time we've actually explicitly heard fred's military uh career same with nobbies right. i think
3: yeah they they, they reference it, like they reference it i think early in guards but like th- there's never been like distinct listings of stuff mm. and um but yeah it, it's it's interesting
0: um, and Scott, you, you have this, I, I definitely want to talk about Carrot. So let's, yeah, let's talk about Carrot. I
2: don't, I don't know what to make of Carrot in the last half of the book. Um, because he, he has up until this point been so resistant to being a king. Like that is a thing that he, it's very, it's clear to him in the narrative that he has been sort of offered this, that he could take it if he wanted it. And he's been very clear about not wanting to do it. And then he goes off into this adventure in the desert and starts like, kind of leaning into all of the things that he had previously been leaning away from in other books where he sort of starts leading these, uh, the first, the first, the men that come with vimes and then the dregs, the dregs. And then like over time just sort of leans further and further into it. And the point where he's talking about how he could, uh, set up guerrilla troops and, you know, end up on a, a, in a war against the, the, uh, against the um the Clatchians and he's ready to he's ready to run off and become lawrence of arabia all of a sudden which seemed sort of off for what i had expected from his characterization
3: i have an idea for this okay is it like the main safety valve preventing uh the divine right of carrot okay is vines okay and that Vines is there to, like, one, be like, help him sort of, like, towards the right path of, like, the common man. Also, it's there as a reminder of, this is what happens when a king tries to come into Qumar uh, Pork.
4: Hmm.
3: However, what Vines, Vines needs Carrot to be a little bit more Carrot in this book. And so he's not, like, trying to block that. Hmm. That's, that's my theory. It's like, it might even be on, like, a subconscious level.
2: Yeah, it could be. Um, I, I I the only thing that bothers me about that is that it's been it's sort of shown that Carrot cares about this before and that if now he's sort of not even not even just willingly, but kind of exuberantly jumping into this role that he hadn't that he'd been leaning away from before, just seems a little bit odd for Carrot as a character. Yeah. You know, it's 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 it goes back on something I thought he was he was all about.
1: <laughs> I think it's partly that he doesn't want to be king of Ankmore Pork. Okay that I don't think he has a problem with being a leader. Like we see him in Port, kind of leaning on the natural leadership quite a bit, you know, with the that he knows everyone, everybody listens to him. Yeah.
0: Chekhov's football.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's almost that, you know, in in the desert, nobody's gonna make him king of the desert, right? Okay. And so, you know, he doesn't have the stopper on him that he always has an in More pork where if he kind of acts the most carrot, you know, somebody might just stick a crown on his head and call it a day, right? Right. Versus yeah. like out in the desert, he can sort of let it all loose because nobody's going to make him king there. He can just lead.
2: It very well could be.
0: The the social structure of the, the dregs in particular, it, like the leader is just the one who yells charge. So all he's doing is is just charismaing around. You know, he's not he's not the leader. He's just organizer and and, and yeah. you know.
2: But there's also a reasonable uh, way to say it, where in Ankh Morpork, he has a role that he's chosen for himself, which is Captain Carrot of the Watch. And so, all of his kingliness and charm goes into being that character. Mm-hmm. And then when you take him out of Ankh Morpork and out of and literally they they all resign from the Watch. He's no longer a member of the Watch anymore, and instead he's captain carrot of vimes's i forget what vimes's unit calls itself but these he's he's a military man now and they're in the desert and this is n- the new role i guess maybe he's just saying oh well i guess i'm i'm in the desert i'm a military man now let's just lean into that that's my new thing mm-hmm. uh, which i'd also believe that he's just like okay this is what we're doing now
0: and then he surfs down a sand dune on a, on a shield <laughs> yes
2: Gets <laughs> his little legolas moment
0: yeah well, it's, it's sort of a, almost a callback to the thing that Angua ironically says uh, near the beginning of the book when, when she tells them to come back with their shields or on it. Oh, yeah. That's good. Yeah.
2: A good callback to it.
0: Which is what? A Spartan thing? Yep. Is that what it was? It's from Spartan. Yeah. Carrot. Carrot is carrot. I yeah. think. And it's gonna, carrot's going to carrot wherever carrot is.
1: <laughs> I wish we'd had more Angua in the back half of the book. Yeah. <laughs> When she frees herself on the ship, is basically the last we – it's not the last we see of Angua, but it's like she's sidelined at that point.
0: She's in the and, background doing damage.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and her and her foray on the boat yeah. doesn't really move the plot too much. Like, it gets them going, but mm-hmm. at that point, it's only that she got everybody else on the boat to start going to Clatch. Her being on the boat and then escaping from it just kind of resolves her own problem, and mm-hmm. then they all end up in Clatch. Yeah. And it's kind of like – I I I just wish there was something like if she had been on the boat. I guess she confirmed that the the prince was on it. But if there had been something, she grabs a map or a or a piece of evidence or something. If it had made that little foray just a little bit more tight into the plot, I would have been I would have been a little happier for that part of it. It felt a little bit cul-de-sacky plot cul-de-sac for me. Yeah. And yeah, oh, and of course, oh, any more angua that we can get, I would love more angua. I just just want more angua. I love her so much.
1: Yeah, she's so good
2: are you a hoary? I don't hold
0: with that language. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love the, the, the tidbit of, um, werewolves having to, uh, improvise clothing as a, as a sort of <laughs> a, a thing that comes comes with the territory. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that, that is very, that was very fun. Do we have anything in particular we want to say about 71 hour op
2: I already said my thing about, um, I,
0: think-
3: I said my
2: thing about, I want to, I wanted to see his version mm. of the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he's, yeah. A yeah. He's, so cool. he's a banger. He's so cool, banger of character. I, I I really like the way that he we first approach him or we, we first see him when he's leaning into all of the worst stereotypes of that he expects of Onk Morporkans, and then we see him come around, and he, that was all just a way he was winding the collective nobility of uh of Onk Morpork up, and he was you know playing him a little bit like a fiddle. I really like that. Of
1: course, he went to the fucking assassins guild school. Yeah, he
0: went
3: to
2: the assassins oh, yeah.
0: guild school.
3: <laughs> that that was the best part of it oh yeah, like, yeah.
2: Oh, I just oh, happened to have assassin. a license so I could kill this guy and there's a contract on him so it's all cool
1: yeah I love the story of how he got his name too mm-hmm. yeah because that's that's the piece where it's like oh he's he's just mirror universe vimes right yeah because you know he got he got his name because he he broke the you know taboo of hospitality or the the tradition of hospitality within the tribe um by you know killing a person who poisoned a well one hour early um but he's like i had the evidence at that point to know that he definitely was the person who poisoned that well so like why fucking wait Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i killed a person he killed a town
1: which do we think is worse here yeah yeah, you know, once that's explained, it's like, oh, Vimes would absolutely do that.
3: Yeah, like I'm now fully bought into that. Like Ahmed is like Vimes and Veninari's like mirror <laughs> universe of Doppin because he went to the assassin school. He's got, like he's the, he's basically like a, the clashing super cop. I just want to imagine that he's got like a very oh, he's sexy
2: got all thing kinds of scars. Far. So yeah. yeah, yeah, as can as by canon. Yeah.
0: Wait, fuck! We talk we forgot to talk about the the
2: multiverse. We hadn't touched upon it at all yet. Yeah. Yeah. The, that, that that, God, I actually kind of don't dig the, the introduction of the disorganizer, but (laughs) it is because it's kind of like, what is this doing here? Until it gets to the moment where it, where that thread kicks off Mm -hmm. at the, at the climax of the thing. And it's like, Oh, okay. All of this faffing about, we were doing with this little comedy bit um, of the, of the disorganizer uh first being just annoying and then being like blatantly wrong and showing the like the other path the other the other the other pants leg of the tals- trousers of time trousers then, of
0: time <laughs> <laughs>
2: and then getting to the climax when we hear all of the characters that we care about like oh you know 701 dot you know uh uh cheery little bottom dies you know then Detritus D- dies and then like it's that hits like a freaking freight train when it comes mm-hmm. in i i like yeah makes it, that whole thread worth it
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And yeah, that's the fuel that Vimes needs to fuel his rage. Yeah. Uh yeah, that's that's really good. And I also fucking love that the the end is just a Captain Hook reference. <laughs> the disorganizer gets eaten by a fucking shark and is just telling the time and giving the schedule. From inside the shark.
2: I do like the fake out where death picks it up first. Yeah. And you think, oh, for a second. And he's like, I, I don't need like this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Generally speaking, my contacts stay contacted. <laughs> I, I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but at one point, the camel that Vimes is riding, he yells at it, you bastard. Which yep. is a
2: lovely little callback to pyramids. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't get any math jokes with the with yeah. the Yeah, There's camels. another
3: like hilarious uh camel name, which is like you brother of a of a son of a jackal.
0: <laughs> uh, actually, wait, Scott, you listened to the audiobook you said. Yeah. What does the what does the Clatchian sound like?
2: Oh, um they, the 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 narrator is doing a vague he actually does a couple of different accents for various Clatchians because um, there's there's multiple nationalities within Clatch mm-hmm. so it's kind of a vaguely Middle Eastern and then occasionally Indian accents he's using for him interesting. Um, it's funny because from the moment we started recording and Anna started talking about all, na- mentioning all the names in the, um, in the synopsis, I'm like, oh yeah, these are all ve- very, slightly differently pronounced than how I've been hearing them over the last couple of, <laughs> of days. It's like, cause as the, he does Ahmed instead of Ahmed. Right. And it's like, that's just because uh, I'm, you know, have yeah. a Western, Western oh, yeah,
0: yeah. palette and can't do, can't do and that then, very well.
2: And then what was it? It's like, uh, it's. Kufura or Kufura, depending on which you know which syllable you put the the emphasis on. It's just one of those things. Where I was like, uh, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. What was I doing? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I y'all all actually read it.
1: It's the it's a traditional curse of having only had the words like narrated in your own head.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, uh,
0: because in the book at least, Clatchian uh, is written uh, in a heavy cursive font.
2: Oh, okay. He actually does a, uh, one of the typographic yeah. changes on there with yeah. like the small caps for for death. Cool to the
0: point where some of the people like uh, Ahmed uh, has a has some some interjections of characters when he's speaking more uh, more mm-hmm.
1: oh, at the very beginning, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. When he's pretending to be a little bit foreign. But yeah. then also, when Carrot is speaking Klatchian, he has interjections of of uh, standard, you know, whatever the typeface is characters, because <laughs> he has a he has a Marporkian accent when he's speaking Klatchian.
2: Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah that's something that, that didn't come across in the in the performance. I'm assuming because I mean, although the the narrator did two different voices for Ahmed when he first shows up, he's got a really thick accent that he's putting mm-hmm. on, and then he shows up later, and it's completely. British, it's, it's RP for him mm-hmm. later, which I liked. Interesting. I forget who it was. I think it was Stephen Briggs this time. Um, hmm. He does a ton of them. Um, he's usually pretty good.
1: So on the typographical thing, I um, I read it on Kindle, and that is not present at all on Kindle. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I could see why that wouldn't. I I, I know a little bit about the uh, the Mobi format that Kindle uses, and fonts are not well supported by it. So I can yeah. I can absolutely imagine why that.
1: They, they It does manage the death font, but that's it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Justin, I need you to take your headphones off for a moment. I'm sorry. Okay. So this is where Vimes really becomes the back half of Vimes that I know, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. The yep. Uh, Be a little bit foreign no matter where you are is like, that's Fifth Element. That's... Uh, El- elephant,
1: his- not Element.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's his appearance in *Monsters Regiment*. Yep. That's his. That's his appearance. That's his entirely in snuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and even just having learned from Ahmed's like willingness to go to Ankh Morpork and solve crimes there, even though it's not really his purview, mm-hmm. is something you can see. Like Vimes saw that happen and goes, "Oh yeah." And then did that in the latter half of the book, and then does it for the next five books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. his whole thing now
0: and you know the fact the fact that he's played so carefully by all of these different people takes him to like a next level of of his suspicious bastarddom
2: yeah
1: yeah
0: you know it's it's sort of calling forward to third thoughts really yeah yeah you know he's looking at what's behind what's behind the curtain yeah
2: yeah, yeah. this is this is a, this is an inflection point for that character it's very cool Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. We shouldn't keep Justin off the mic, not off the headphones of too long.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, do we have uh, have them return to it for me to talk about Verity Push Pram? Because <laughs> I have some words that are yeah. slightly spoilery, but only for that one particular plot. I think plot.
1: it's okay. I think it's, yeah, I think it's okay. okay.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about Verity Push Pram.
2: Okay. She is so far out of Nobs' league that. Uh, as I put it, uh, he needs a make things bigger device just to see the bottom of her shoes. <laughs> the fact that people kept trying and then narr- there and the, the narrative itself a little bit kind of pushes those two together. My, my I am like she's so much better than him just because she's got a little bit of a squint or the opposite of a squint, I guess, as they put it. Uh, she is. She owns a small business that will turn into an empire over the course of the next few books. And the fact that that everybody thinks that she's going to end up with knobs is such an insult to <laughs> The the uh, I don't use this word girl boss that is Verity (laughs) Pushman and she makes her intention clear from the beginning. She throws fish at him to get him to go away, (laughs) and he bothers her for another couple of (laughs) books.
0: You know, free meal.
2: (laughs) It was an eel last time. That was those are very expensive. Those are expensive.
0: (laughs) Anything else we want to touch on before we move to other things? Um, I mean, I've got real world stuff, but that's part of the the whole thing. There's a lot of like little
3: real world stuff. Like at one point, somebody said "Like somebody says, Veninari says it'll be all over by hog, Hog's Watch," right? Which is a fantastic. I that that that's a World War One reference. The other yeah. one is the mm-hmm. soccer game.
0: Yeah, the Christmas truce.
2: Yeah, yeah, the Christmas truce. Uh,
0: and then speaking of round world references, this is the the thing with Lesh appearing and the disappearing. Is a real thing that happened. Uh, in recent memory.
1: That's fucking uh, wild.
0: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't a gas bubble. It was erosion um, of, of you know, basically volcanic ash. But mm-hmm. this is an island that periodically appears and disappears um, and has been the subject of, of minor conflicts um, that have involved, among others, Britain, France, Spain, and the kingdom of the two Sicilies. So, yeah, he was writing from reality.
1: Which that's is... great. I really want to learn more about the history of Lush because like there's all of the, it's like the squid city, right? There's
2: some I, Cthulhu shit. We didn't bring it up till now, oh. but
1: yeah, no, that's make, okay, so it's
2: the, the curious squid are obviously sentient, right? Like they're, they're smart enough to make cities and people eat them. This is like a, no, they, they, is they don't a, eat them.
0: They catch them very and, specific, and they're very specific. We don't eat them.
2: It, no, no. Only if they're a particularly good chef. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the implication is that a lot of these things get get eaten, and that is a that is a fridge horror situation right there. All of a sudden, <laughs>
0: <laughs> they they are curious.
2: Curious about a lot of things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. Any other round world stuff we want to touch on? I mean, there's there's a ton. Uh, yeah, but this is
3: a it, it is one that's just chock full of um, mm-hmm. um I, I, yeah, that, that, that like I could, you know, you can go through. The, oh, there is one. There's there's a bit about a translation of the holy book in class. Oh, yeah. Yes. Which is a reference to the Council of mm-hmm. Nicaea. Which was, as like a huge nerd, was a very, like, I think of like, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> Terry giving us that 4th century Christianity lore.
2: <laughs> Deep cut.
0: Well, and then also the the thing where the, the people were handing out, were, were pushing white feathers on uh, yeah. men who weren't signing up for the regiments. Yeah. Which yeah, is yeah, that's a, a real World thing. War One thing, right?
2: Uh, maybe I'm wrong on this one because it's been a long time, but I think it was an American Civil War thing, too. Um, I think so.
1: And Nabi's like, if I hold out, I'll have enough for a bed.
0: Uh Carrot's little speech is probably a reference to something, but also should have probably been a button. Uh if we succeed, no one will remember, and if we fail, no one will forget.
1: And and that that's the speech where Vimes is like, I don't know why that worked, but apparently it worked. So great, cool. <laughs> yeah. We're going with it.
2: Um, any
0: last things or should we move on to the ratings?
2: Do you uh do you want to hear how I got into Pratchett? I actually have a little story. I'm not I just sure a good story. I,
0: I, I guess I should have that. put that at the beginning.
3: <laughs>
1: but Sorry, we can, we can yeah, re- because air. I'm so beginning.
0: I'm I'm fine. so used to you being part of Babpod, Pod, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm
2: like everybody I'm not, knows. No, you did don't didn't, go
1: the two did Scott just like emerge whole cloth from uh from the ether into our server?
2: <laughs> you guys didn't even uh, you didn't even let me plug stuff when it was Ted Lasso time. <laughs> this is fine. No.
3: Uh,
2: yeah, We're no, podcasters. Uh, <laughs> it's professionals, We're right? Professionals.
3: This is why we don't bring on new guests. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, then we do okay with the new guests. It's the repeat guests that are the problem. Right.
2: Yeah. Or yeah. Or, or you're too comfortable.
0: Pre prepeat, because <laughs> I think you may am actually I, yeah.
2: Am I your only three three Pete?
0: So tell us about how you got into this World Scott.
2: So it was on the periphery for me for a long time. It was one of those things that people kept well actually. I kept seeing quotes from it online because this was the <laughs> age when uh, funny funny quotes from books would just circulate in chat me- chat rooms and message boards and stuff. And I kept seeing Terry Pratchett Discworld books. And I'm like, oh, I got to check those out one day. And then I think I was 14 and my mother dragged me on a business trip to New Orleans, which would have been cool, except I was there with my mother. And at an age when I did not want to be anywhere with my mom, I wanted to be doing whatever I, uh, else I could do. And this was... It would have been cool. It was SIGGRAPH, which is a 3D modeling convention. But again, I didn't want to be there with my mom. And the second day, the first day was terrible. I had to, I was miserable and I was just being a little shit the whole day because I didn't want to be there. And on our way over to the convention center on the second day, we stopped by this, this little bookshop that was in New Orleans at the time. It was in the French Quarter. I'm pretty sure it's not there anymore because I'm, I imagine that it folded itself up and disappeared from this dimension and is now somewhere else because uh, it was the exact kind of little bookstore where you walk in and it was taller than it was wide and incredibly deep and, it was, and just books all the way up on every side, these huge tall shelves with the, with the ladders. This was the first time I'd ever seen a ladder on a bookshelf in real life. And I was going through there and I found a couple of little books that I wanted and I found Lords and Ladies, which Ooh. I was like, Ooh, Discworld. I've been meaning to pick these up. It was a paperback, you know, a dollar ha- and a, 50 cents or something, like $1. fifty. And I was like, okay, grab it in a different pile of books. And we went to the convention center and my mom was like, well, I got to go off to a, to a thing. Do you want to tag along to this speech? And I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to sit here in a hallway and I'm going to crack open these books that I just bought. And I opened Lords and Ladies and I read all the way through and didn't notice that the time had passed until she came to get me for dinner. <laughs> I sat on the floor in a convention center reading that first book and I and immediately went home and bought every single uh, used copy of Discworld books that I could get my hands on, um, and I, I will say the fact that I that Lords and Ladies, which is not my favorite series and isn't my favorite book of that series, it's like that's maybe sec that's like th- that's below half for me on on Discworld <laughs> books. The fact that that one was the one that made me ravenous, I think, says something about how uh, how much I like the series. And then I ended up reading them in completely some bonkers order. It was it was the reading order of whatever showed up at half price books near my house. <laughs> That I could grab, um, yeah. So that's how I, I I found my way into the world of Discworld, and have since read them maybe whole whole read throughs maybe five times. Dang, um, yeah. Because um, every couple of years I'll just start from the beginning, um, and I have a controversial opinion, which is that uh, if you're recommending new user new readers, start with Tiffany Aching. That's my that's my hot take. <laughs> uh, it's the one that is meant for. Pratchett wrote it with the intent for new, new readers. So you don't need to have read anything before, but it's also peak ability for Pratchett to write. Mm-hmm. Those are the best books for new readers. They'll get you in. And if you like them, then you'll be good. Um, and, and despite the fact that the guards books are my heart and soul, and I will love them to the day I die, I would say start with Tip- Tiffany Aching. Yeah, although... Which you I guys think, haven't even got to yet.
0: Yeah, I think Shepherd's Crown has to sort of...
2: Oh, yeah, I don't think you should read them all the way through. Yeah. I think you should read the first, maybe two Tiffany Aching books. And then if you like it, you can go back and read the other stuff.
4: But... Yeah.
1: Leafy Men is such a solid book. It really is. Amazing Amazing Maurice is a good starting point, too. I can't believe you mm. haven't read that, Scott.
2: I'll tell you right now, somehow it didn't register in my brain that it was a Discworld book.
1: It absolutely <laughs> is Discworld. It's said in this Uber is what or... I fa-
2: this, is, this is what I've this is what I found out, and I'm like... How did it just not show up on my radar somehow? Um and then it, I just haven't gotten around to it since then. I think, my last read was. The, five, definitely check out the audiobook
1: on. for it too. It's a really, really solid narration.
2: Oh yeah, I do have it. Okay, great. So yeah, it'll come up. I may go out of order for that one because I'm I'm not gonna will you guys if, if I've if I've been keeping up with you guys on your read throughs, then I won't hit that till like <laughs> I don't know, next 2003, 13, <laughs> <13? laughs> almost. <laughs> no, nah, next year. But I think I'll go out of order for that one because I really should read it.
0: There's some good cat stuff in there. I think it's time for some ratings. Yeah. So, Justin, how would you rate this book?
3: I would rate it 69 out of 72
1: hours of hospice. Nice.
0: Uh, Anna?
1: I would give it seven out of eight tentacles on a curious squid. Scott?
2: I would give it a finite number of actual appointments among an infinite number of possible appointments, which is, I had to go for the joke. I'd actually, I know that's infinitely small. I do actually like the book. I just had to go for the joke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I give this book eight out of 10 clues rife with confirmation bias. Okay. Time for the bit.
3: Yes. Our next book, which is going to be book 22, is The Last Continent. I almost said The Last (laughs) Continent. It's The Last Continent. Something is amiss at Unseen University, Ankhornport's most prestigious, read-only institution of higher learning. A professor is missing, but a search party is on the way. A bevy of senior wizards will follow the trail wherever it leaves. Even to the other side of the Discworld, where the last continent, 4X, is under construction. Imagine a magical land where rain is but a myth, and the ordinary is strange, and the past and present run side by side. Experience the terror as you encounter a mad dwarf, the peach butt, and the dreaded meat pie floater. Feel the passion as the denizens of the last continent learn what happens when rain falls and rivers fill with water. It spoils regattas, for one thing. Thrill to the promise of next year's regatta, in remote, rustic, did you bring a beer along? It'll be absolutely guru. No worries. As we, do we, are we do we have an Australian that we can call? <laughs> I'm, for I'm this? working
0: on it. I think that the Pratchett podcast may be joining us.
3: Okay, good.
1: Hopefully, hopefully.
3: Uh, I, I'm looking forward to not <laughs> getting half of
1: the things. This is this is another one that I've got some trepidation about here. So we'll we'll see we'll see because Django turned out entirely different from what I was fearing. We shall see. But Interesting Times was exactly what I feared, and then some. On the
0: plus side, I think it's the last Rincewind book. Oh, yes. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at atuinpod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.